This is Fans on the Run, a podcast made by, for, and about Beatles fans. And now, here's your host, Ethan Alladayan. Alright, hello, 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 hello. Welcome back to Fans on the Run, everyone's favorite Beatles podcast. Said me, you can quote me on that. For I, I usually say don't quote me on that, but I'm feeling pretty good about myself today, so you know what? Quote me on that. I, I was looking at my uh, iTunes for the show, so even if you've just started the episode, uh, please go ahead and rate the show five stars wherever you're listening to it. I, I don't make any money off the show, it's just, it helps my ego, and it's... Yeah, I got this really nice uh, thing today that, and I put a twinkle in my eye, and now I have a s- skip in my step. I yeah, see that I usually have delusional ramblings at the start of the show, but this is a more positive delusional rambling than usual. So there you go. That's a little special treat for y'all. I just said y'all. What the fuck? Okay, well you learn something new every day. Anyways, end delusional rambling. We have a fantastic guest for you today. He is probably one of the like comprehensive authorities on the solo Beatles world. Um, back in the year 2000, he and Mark Easter wrote Eight Arms to Hold You, the Solo Beatles Compendium, which is basically the ultimate reference guide to anything involving the solo Beatles. And if that wasn't good enough, in 2018, they went back and updated it as a uh, PDF ebook, and it's even better now. Well, I, I don't really know. Compared to the original, I was talking with my friend Tom Hanyati, he has the original, and we compared notes, and it is it is comprehensive-er. As if it wasn't already comprehensive enough. And, if that wasn't good enough, he has written Leninology, Strange Days Indeed, A Scrapbook of Madness, co-written by Scott Riley, and it's volume one of what one hopes to be many. Please welcome to the show, Chip Manninger. Well, welcome to Fans on the Run. Hi, Ethan. Was my introduction too rambly? No, it wasn't too bad. Last night's was equally as good. Yeah. So oh, ooh, breaking together. the fourth wall here. Yeah. yeah. Yes, I will admit, this is one of those times where I was not on my A-game, and this is the second attempt. I, I take the shame, I take the blame. But you know what? Today's a new day. So, how are you doing today, compared to yesterday? I'm good. It's, uh, weather's great, start of the weekend, and we're one day closer to the election. One day closer. It's... Some would say that's a good thing. Some would say it's, you know, existential dreadfulness. We'll find out soon. Well, there's only a few more days away. Uh, we're saying this now, but by the time the episode goes up, the results will happen and we all could be dead by then. So it'll just be the cockroaches listening to this show. The cockroaches and Keith Richards. Although I don't know what Keith Richards would be doing listening to a Beatles podcast. Anyways, I want to jump right back to the beginning, because you are an author, but you are a Beatle fan. That's right. So, when did you first discover the Beatles? I think my, my first, first time I ever heard the Beatles probably would have been on WLS out of Chicago. We were able to pick that up where I lived, and... Uh, so obviously they were they were a top forty station, yeah. and uh, 
I had a little cassette recorder that I'd hold the microphone up whenever. Even I know WLS, like as a Canadian, was one of the big, you know, stations that kind of broke the Beatles. So so it was the Beatles and, and believe it or not, Motown um, at the time seemed to be my favorites. And, and uh, as I was saying, I was gifted a tape recorder and I'd go through and I'd, I'd faithfully record all the uh songs off the air and to these this day i still hear the late starts and the and the dj banter over the end of the songs at times i was so familiar with the tapes well since the show uh likes to take a lot of side turns and back alleys you brought up motown i'll just throw this in what is your favorite motown group I don't. Uh, probably Stevie Wonder. I think that's that's an easy question. Like, what's your favorite rock group? But uh, yeah. I left Motown a, a long yeah. time ago, so yeah. um, tended to go for a little a little harder sound. So, so um, whenabouts did you discover the Beatles? Were they still a group? No, no. I'm technically a second generation Beatles fan, born in 1963. And the first things I remember hearing would have been Hey Jude and and Uncle Albert mm-hmm. comes to mind. And then it's 1973 and the Blitz came along, you know, the second oh, yeah. wave with the Red and the Blue albums. And Well, 73 was a great year all mm-hmm. around for, because he had Red Rose Speedway, Mind Games, uh, Ringo, 30, or not 33 and a third, Living in the Material World, and mm-hmm. the Red and the Blue. It was, ever, ever, it was awesome. Uh, it's, yeah, it, it, it must have been an exciting time. Still remember going to the department stores, which carried records back then, had a large record department, and, and pulling the eight tracks out, and because they would always have the songs listed on the cover. The albums didn't necessarily have the, the, the song listing, so that's how I'd go and get the song titles. Would be looking at the eight track labels. Yeah, well, but you didn't buy the eight tracks. No, didn't buy the eight yeah. tracks. Well, at least they served a purpose. That's right. Yeah. Um, out of curiosity, what department store would you have been going to in those days? Um, J.C. Penney's comes to mind. There was a, uh, a drugstore, liquor store that had a huge record department here in St. Louis called Skaggs. Um, th- those are really the ones that come to mind. And um, So... Um, with these first uh, Beatles records, uh, actually, no. What was the first record by the Beatles you remember owning? It would have been Magical Mystery Tour that uh, would have been gifted to me, probably as remnants of a garage sale. I, I got a stack of albums, and uh, Magical Mystery Tour was was top of the pile. Now, here's the important question. This is the this is the most important question in the show. Did it have the booklet? Yes. Hallelujah. There you yes. go. And thus began your your endeavors as a collector. Is that right. really how you started? That, that and I would uh, haunt the used record stores, uh, the dollar bins. And back then, uh, Beatle albums were not $40 a pop oh, for beat copies in the used bins. You, you know, you could amass a nice collection for, for $10. You could, you could, you know pick up quite a few albums they might skip here and there and have writing all over the cover but it was it was the music that mattered at the time 
Chip, you're killing me here. You're killing me. I paid... Oh, God, I hate saying this. $40 for a copy of Rubber Soul Mono that has, you know, a little bit of ring wear on the cover because that was the best price I had found in a while. That's really depressing. Nowadays, you have, you have to strike when the iron's hot. If you see something and you want it, you've got to get it because when you leave it and go back for it, it's not going to be there. It's just, I, I love hearing the stories of back when records, you know, you could find them for like a buck a pop and they weren't just, you know, uh, Herp Albert and you know, Barbara Streisand records. This is sad, but I still remember the names that were written on the front cover of my first White Album. Really? Yeah. Do you have any shout-outs you'd like to give to those names? No, I have no idea who, who they are, but they would have probably lived in Indianapolis, Indiana. Well, the White Album, it's... I... That's one of the albums I have a hard time grappling with as a collector, because, uh, yeah, the minimalist white cover is cool and all, if you have, like, a minty copy, but you'll spend, like, hundreds of dollars trying to find one that isn't either covered in ringware, fucking coffee stains, or writing. That, that might have been part of the appeal of it, was that every cover would end up being different, not only because of the numbers on it, but because of the the, the writing and the stains and the, the leftovers that yeah. you spoke of. Well, kind of on that, do you know about the guy who uh, has this kind of exhibit where he only, it's like a record store, but it's like, we buy white albums? No, I think that's, that's all he's got. Yeah. Isn't it a shop in San Francisco or, or somewhere in California? I don't think it's a shop. I think it's like an exhibit kind of, okay. which really pains me because I follow him on Instagram and he posts all the white albums and occasionally there's some like really nice ones and it's like, oh, come on, you're hoarding them all. That just, must just, be very exciting. Just let me, just let me have one. Like you have 47 Japanese mint copies of the White Album. Give me one. Save some for the rest of us peasants. Yeah. Anyways, I'm not bitter. Who said I'm bitter? So, as I'm working my way towards, you know, how you started writing the books, but a big part of that is you being, or amassing this collection and being a collector. I want to ask, right now in your collection, what is the uh, rarest record you own? Oh my. Um, not a Beatles record. Oh, that's uh, but okay. Beatles record wise, oh, I might have to get back to you on that one. Um, uh, like a butcher? Uh, butchers, or uh, I've got a lot of signed items. Uh, signed not necessarily items. signed by the groups, but individually signed items. How, uh, how many signatures do you own? Probably a dozen. Of all four? No, 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 no. Oh. None, of, none of them are on the same. It's either a Paul alone or a George alone or, or John and Yoko together. Um, but no, I, I do not have a set of group signatures. Well, I mean, having any signatures is awesome. And you have That's, like a dozen of them. Yeah. I and can't. The, the best one is, is the one that uh, Mark Easter and I, we, we actually got to meet Paul and Linda 
1994 when Linda was doing a promotional uh, junket for her line of vegetarian uh, TV dinners. And St. Louis was a test market, so she and Paul came to town and did a press conference, and and we got our way in uh, with credentials of some sort, and yeah. were able to have a, a few mo- minutes, share a few minutes with the two of them. Were the credentials legit? Uh, they were kind of. Yeah, well, those are the best kind of credentials. They were hard earned. They yeah, were hard earned credentials. Because I I don't think anyone like any fan really ever has credentials to anything, but they always find their way in. Unless they're in the in the business, <laughs> that's probably it. Well, we're we're a determined lot. Um, is there any like holy grail item that like you searched the longest time for that just kept eluding and eluding and eluding you, but then you finally got it? Yes. What might that be? That would have been the German Mary Had a Little Lamp single that has the alternate mix on it. Oh, that's right. Well, I didn't realize, um, because me being, I... I know more about the the Beatles as a group and all the alternate mixes and stuff. Uh, and your book was a real eye opener for me. Uh, that the solo stuff was just as hectic and crazy in terms of variations of mixes as the soul or as the group stuff, and in some instances more. There are quite a lot of variations, and also it came down to the marketing. Um, in those days, you know, the Beatles would have singles and they'd have albums and never the twain should meet. But as the solo years went on, the singles were pulled from the albums and sometimes they were different mixes or different edits. Uh, there weren't necessarily as many uh, variations between the two mixes since by that time, uh, mono mixes were simply fold downs with the exception of the Ram album and the first two Paul McCartney singles, so there weren't that many variations to sort out, but they started marketing with, you know, 7 inches, 12 inches CDs of the same song. For example, Figure of Eight, I believe there were eight variations released in the UK for that disc. Well, it's not really different mixes, but Paul's still kind of doing that to this day. Like, the other week, he brilliant... He's a brilliant marketer, you know, selling 10 different colored vinyl variations of an album that no one's heard anything from yet. By the time this is out, the album will be out, and it'll either be a modern classic or it'll be shit. And I will not admit how many copies I bought. Okay, well, did did you... Were you one of the lucky ones who got the, the third man yellow? No. Okay. No. I was up a little too late for that one. I think that went on. I don't know what time that went on sale, but they were long gone by the time I got there. Well, I think it was Third Man kind of screwed the pooch there because they put it up too early and it didn't like uh, match the rest of them because every, everything else went live at the same time. Right. So right. I think, um, again, I'm 18, so I put. I sent the link to the red third man one to my mom and it said Christmas present question mark question mark question mark and the pre-order she's like okay and then the pre-order sold out right away and so I am just hoping that Santa Claus brings me some 
red final. Yep. Yep, and I don't think we're done yet. I think there'll probably be more and more deluxe versions. I think he saw with Egypt Station how many times he could sell the same album. But doesn't that... I'll I'll share an opinion. It may be a bit of an unpopular one, but I want to see what you think. It's making me a little jaded in terms of collecting, because um, it's not even like a classic album like Sgt. Pepper, where you kind of it sometimes justifies buying like a couple copies you mean you'll play it more than once yeah but buying you know there's the egypt station there's the the one that folds out like an accordion there's the one on blue and orange vinyl there's the spotify green vinyl and then oh traveler's edition oh egypt station 2 and then a suitcase and like oh my god like does anyone, actually, suitcase. does anyone actually like this album? Crickets. Crickets. Crickets speak volume here. I, I'm sure there are defenders of Egypt Station, and everyone has a right to be wrong. Everyone's allowed to be wrong. I, I, I don't know remember you're talking about the the many permutations people used to be upset when the singles weren't on the mccartney albums like mill of kintyre was or goodnight tonight were not on back to the egg and mill of kintyre wasn't on london town and uh, things have kind of flipped a full 180 and around again oh but at this point i feel like they'll do anything they can to sell as many physical copies of something as possible because well there are many there are a couple reasons for that and one is because if they pre-order you know eight copies of the same album that will greatly increase its chances of of entering the charts at number one which is what we saw happen with egypt station yeah, because it registers as, oh, instead of one copy, someone bought eight copies. And so that's why you get, like, Egypt Station shoots to number one in its first week and then drops to number 63 in its next. Oh. But, yeah, it's it's getting a little frustrating because as, as a collector, I'm sure you feel kind of the same. Like, you have this urge to, like, want to get things, mm-hmm. even if you, like, don't really want them. Kind of like the big flaming pie box. Yeah. Well... Which, uh, which once you have it in hand, it's, it's a beautiful thing, but, you know, you, yeah. you look at it once and then you file it away. Yeah. You... You reach a threshold. Like, with the Flaming Pie, I'm fine with the, the 3LP version. Like, that's that's fine. It's, like, 70 bucks? Perfect. I, I don't need all the other stuff. Especially in this, like, age of streaming. It's all, you know, available. And that's another reason they feel that they need to sell eight copies is because there are eight people that are going to illegally download it or stream it (laughs) rather than purchasing it. Well, I feel like illegally downloading doesn't really happen as much anymore because, um, you know, it's not even illegal anymore. You can just do it for free with, like, Spotify and YouTube. 
And, and that's right. Yeah. Spring makes it even easier because you can search for precisely what you want. We, we've gotten more sophisticated than the days of Napster. Mm-hmm. The, the only thing, okay, I will admit, and well, you could appreciate this because you like bootleg, the only thing I've ever illegally downloaded, for legal reasons, this didn't happen, but for the sake of the story, it did. Wink, wink. Um, I downloaded... I, or I may have downloaded uh, about three gigabytes worth of Beatles bootlegs. Mm-hmm. That's as much as I've done. So how how do you fill your your unreleased Beatles collection? Then how do you? Well, I I have them all as I I can't remember the company that uh, compiled them because it's this like something purple purple chick I think. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the they're like deluxe edition things right, for the albums. Right. So I, I have each of those in my computer, and then I have uh, I may or may not have all of the BBC stuff as well, which I think I'm going to need to buy a new hard drive because I it's it basically feels like I have like five gigabytes worth of Brian Matthews. Like, so lads, tell us about this next number. And and in the old days, the BBC stuff was gold. There, uh, oh. I'm trying to remember the year. It would have been, it would have been the mid '80s, I think, when the Beatles at the Beeb oh. radio, the, the series of bootleg albums began well, to appear, and we'd never heard them in that quality before. Well, but those albums are, are really special because I feel like they mark a point in the history of bootlegs where it's the covers went from being you know like a a colored sheet of paper with like a badly xeroxed picture of the band to something that looks like emi could have made it like those beatles at the beeb albums are gorgeous they have wonderful covers they do they do and you know if bootleg old bootlegs weren't so expensive i'd have them all but except people like to charge, like, ooh, $50. Well, there's an appeal to the old slip sheet, as we call them, bootlegs, mm-hmm. that had the, yeah. you know, they were they were pressed one play. Well, that's, and even now, we, the, the bootleggers just became more sophisticated. They mm-hmm. print the covers in one place, and, and most of the albums would be uh, pressed in Canada, and mm-hmm. and as they'd be assembled someplace else, and and... That's that's just the way it, the business developed. Well, I'm trying to remember the name of the company that did like most of the early prominent bootlegs. Was it was it Trademark Equality or Trademark Equality? Were they later? No, Trademark Equality was in there at the, the beginning, I believe. That's that's the one with the the logo. It's the pig with the cigar in its mouth. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because PMOQ. PMO which which has even been adopted as a as a label today, although it's completely different people. Yeah, but it's it's all about the brand rec- rec- recognition. Right. Ooh, whoa! I just kind of stuttered there. But anyways, I'll I'll ask you something else. What is out of all of the bootlegs you own? It could be because of the cover, could be because of what's on it. What is your favorite bootleg? Could be solo, could be Beatles. Actually, no, I'll, I'll split that into two. What's your favorite Beatles bootleg? It would have to have been the ultra-rare tracks, because when those came out, it was like nothing we'd ever heard before. 
I mean, you can't imagine it because when when you started collecting all of the old Ferrer tracks and all of the yeah. all of the John Barrett tapes, it had surfaced. But at that time, they were being dropped in in little thirty minute chunks. And uh, this was, was you know pre anthology, so nothing yes. had been official. They so got, I'd have to say. They got close with that Sessions album, but that fizzled out just as soon as it happened. Right, right. So I'd have to say that the unreleased tracks, or ultra-rare tracks, Volumes 1 and 2, would be my first, and or not my first, but my favorite Beatles boot. Uh, as I, for Solo, probably would have been... Um, Vigatone's Absolute Elsewhere, the the Mind Games set, mm-hmm. just because the the production on the on the commercial Mind Games was was so cluttered, and here we were able to hear the, the album in in its rough mix form, and, and it was just there there was just such a greater clarity to it. I don't find myself buying bootlegs that often these days, but when. I because of you know the internet you can find everything you want but I I do have a few favorites of my own and it, it's mainly because of the the charm of the artwork mm-hmm. it's even though one of them sounds like dog shit it's the Beatles versus the Third Reich from from the mid eighties yeah it's that I I would buy just an empty jacket of I I I'm not gonna say how much I paid for it but I would have paid anything. A, be- it, it, yeah. a, a brilliant piece of of artwork. Piss off Pete. Yeah. And all the tracks on the back, like, Come give me a dying penis. Where, are your pa- where is your papers? Uh, <laughs> and then one I, I just picked up a couple weeks ago, the, the Sapgore series from the late 80s, out of quote-unquote New Zealand... Uh, Those were more for the covers than anything else. The contents were quite weak. Yeah, But, But, you know, owning a Beatles album called Fuck is worth its weight in gold. uh, I don't know what United Artists were thinking. Yeah, I know. It's just for the shock factor. Just, I love being able to, like, bring friends over and they're like, oh, wow, you have way too many Beatles records. It's like, what don't you own? I'm like, well, you want to see something weird? Boom! Fuck. E- either that or I pull out the, the help with the shell the gas logo. Mm-hmm. That, I think, is one of the biggest anomalies. Even though it has a documented history, it's just... Well, I, there, were a lot, there would be a lot of tie-ins in, in the 60s. You know, just like there are nowadays, and you know they they tied in with Shell Oil Corp, and um, you know they actually were able to produce an album. I mean, nowadays with with the control that uh, the record labels have over there, the acts, you know, something like that, it never happened nowadays. Um, I'm going to go back to the book. Um, so. I, I can't even imagine how long it must have taken to do, especially in the pre-internet age. Uh, what were some of the, the biggest resources you had at your disposal to do these, or to gather this information? No, I, I assume we're talking about eight arms. Eight arms. Eight arms. 
um, it would have been up till that time a lifetime of, of tape collecting and, and trading, uh, not only live material and TV material, but interviews as well, which you know actually would tell a lot of the story. Uh, we interviewed uh, many of the musicians on the albums, uh, the recording engineers, uh, some of the record label people, and in those days we uh, were fortunate enough to uh, have access to the um, Federation of Musician contracts really? for the albums, because if an album was recorded in the U.S. and the session musicians were, were used, a contract had to be issued to collect the the wages <laughs> and they would often incorrectly have the dates of the session and the songs that were recorded and up until that time there was very little of that information known outside of the the this uh, lewis and sessions book but there was nothing for the solo years so between AFMs in, in LA and, and Nashville and, and New York and the engineers and their diaries and the musicians and the like, we were able to put together, I think, a very good picture of uh, a lot of primary research for the solo years. Um, since it, times have kind of changed and the book has been updated, um, but it's been updated with more information through the year 2000. That's correct. Um, at the present time, which Beatle do you think has done the best job at presenting their catalogs and their vaults to to the people? I, I would say that the Lennon estate has been the most generous, but the McCartney uh, camp has put together the best packages. Mm-hmm. With, with, oh. with the Harrison State, um, I, I don't know what's going on there. There's you been know. practically nothing, mm-hmm. George. The only thing of note to come from the Harrison estate in the past, um, I don't know, six years, was that vinyl box set. But even the those were just reissues. Right. Is it, well, it was a good place for a new collector to get all of the albums in new condition. I mean, it saved me money on buying, well, I probably will buy an original pressing of, you know, Live in Japan or Brainwashed. Like, Both of those, you know, were, were published when vinyl was at its, its low point mm-hmm. and rightfully commanded, you know, extreme prices. Before they were reissued. Well, I'm, I'm glad that Paul... Uh, one of the happiest moments of last year was when they did that reissue series of all the live stuff, and they finally reissued Paul is Live. So it's, oh, thank God I don't have to pay $150, $200 for it. I agree. Um... I mean, after paying what I paid for an original copy of uh, Off the Ground, I don't really want to be buying much original 90s vinyl. There it is. Oh my, whoa, whoa, whoa. You you folks at home cannot see what is going on, but Chip just pulled out a, a gem. Could you explain to the people at home what you are holding? That is a, a copy of the original Paul is Live UK pressing that 
this guy wrote his name on it. What a what a schmuck! What an ass! Yeah, yeah. yeah. What what does the scribble look like? It, it, it looks like it says Paul Mix something. Yeah. But uh, he was gracious enough to sign that and, and to sign some other things for us when I when I told you we we caught him at the press conference. That is. That is, I think, the most impressive thing a guest has ever done on the show. It's the ultimate power move. <laughs> that is... Oh, I am kind of speechless. And, oh, Jesus. <laughs> what is that? What is that one? That's the uh, stranglehold sleeve. And it also has that same scribble of the British man named Paul Mix something. But he wrote it to me. He wrote it to you. It was pretty exciting. Uh, well, wow. Pulling out two autographed Paul McCartney records like they're, you know, nothing is just, like, mind-blowing. Fortunately, I know where they still are. Yeah. Because there's... I, I, I was told the story once by another collector friend. They had an autograph. It got misplaced. And they are now sad. But, oh, man. You you can't see at home. Again, because this is an audio show, and it's my show, and I don't like showing my face. Um, But could you explain uh, some of the top items? Well, it's just come from, from 45 years of collecting. And a lot of these things were, were obtained when they were new and were much easier to, to come across. So, um, you know, I've started to liquidate the, the collection now just for, for other generations of fans. And um, so, you know, some of the top items are gone and some of them I'm going to hold on to and pass on to the kids. So, well, you know, if, if you ever feel the need, like if you feel one of those gold records is, you know, a little too heavy on your wall, uh, I'll, I'll send you my address. All right. <laughs> um, so I, I've got a couple more questions about uh, Eight Arms, but then I, I want to ask you some questions about Leninology. So with eight arms uh what was the song or because the you you cover everything from like tv appearances to tour dates to uh you know everything but the stuff i i found most fascinating as you know a record obsessed well not record but just music obsessed nerd is reading about all these you know variations of songs different mixes different things that like oh it's i i can't remember which one but there was like a mix that you could only find on the australian axis records version of one release uh, plastic ono band plastic ono band and it was one of them had like a longer fade out how did you how did you manage to track down as many of these variations in a pre Y2K world? Well, there there was, you know, a network of collectors and it just went at a much slower pace. It was just generated by the the speed of the the US mail. <laughs> and uh, and trading abroad, I mean, it didn't cost $20 to send a record overseas back then. So we, you know, it was a lot easier to to get import 
pressings and the like. Um, when, when you couldn't find them at a record store, you could probably find another collector in that country that would, would track one down for you. So, um, and it was just through that network and some self-discovery. Um, I mean, when I first tracked down a copy of the, the Mono Ram album, it, it hadn't been documented yet that it was a completely different mix. Hold on. Was, I'm, I'm going to stop you right there. Uh, the Mono Ram album, it's... It's been reissued for the Record Store Day, but this book was not written then. Does that mean you actually had the Mono Ram album? I had access to a Mono Ram album. I did not. I do not own a copy of the okay. Mono. Ram. But you had access. What right. was that like? Just well, that was like, the goal of the book was to go through and to listen to everything U.S. and U.K. And these things would present themselves, all these different edits, and in the, in the case of the mono ram, the different mixes. Um, there's one one thing that really stood out to me, kind of when I was reading uh, about the Band on the Run album. It's to other people, this would not be interesting. To me, this was a gripping read. Um, the CD versions of Band on the Run. A uh, bit of a clusterfuck, to put it uh, generally. Mm-hmm. What happened? Well, as you know, there was the, uh, the U.S. and the U.K. carried different track listings with the inclusion of Helen Wheels in the U.S. Mm-hmm. And uh, primarily when CDs were, were first issued in, in, the, in the mid to late 80s, they would be produced from... Uh, the UK tapes, the copy tapes. Mm-hmm. And and so when they pressed the original copies of Band on the Run, it did not have Helen Wheels. So fast forward to Capital uh, creating their own CD pressing plant in Jacksonville, Illinois, and they had a copy of the US tapes. And when they issued reissued Band on the Run is manufactured in the US, here is Helen Wheels. Um, another anomaly with the uh, Band on the Run CDs was when the, the DTS pressing came out, uh, the beginning, the first three notes of Band on the Run were uh, indexed incorrectly on the album so they were chopped off you'd have to put in the the disc and rewind it to a minus three seconds to catch the whole song the the dts is that the the 1999 one that would have been the uh the 19 i think they surfaced in 1997 initially and they uh um were, were marketed differently. They did come out in 1999 on, on a broad uh, scope and Best Buy and the like, but uh, the the initial pressing of, of yeah, Band on the Run was uh, truncated. Yeah. And one thing I would like to note is all of this is very well guarded by three very large dogs, <laughs> Winston, Ben, and Jets, that... Uh, yeah. It's, you know... You can release the hounds. Exactly. I I have a dog. I well, I have a dog. Um, that that would not happen because he's a golden retriever. Uh, his IQ is as high as his age, and he is turning five. Um, 
He's a very good boy, but he's not the smartest. They're wonderful as puppies. They're, well, he, I, I, yeah, he's, oh, God, fucking dog. I'm not bitter. He didn't keep me up last night. Um, last question. This is an opinionated question. Was going through every song that on every John, Paul, George, Ringo album, including the Yoko tracks, painful in some regards? Not as painful as listening to all of the live Ringo and live McCartney shows. One of the neatest accomplishments, I think, of Eight Arms to Hold You was identifying the source venue of all of the tracks on Wings Over America. Really? And that that? was done by, by basically syncing up the tapes of every live show and matching it with the album. Oh, my God. And when they'd sync, you'd know that they were from the same venue. Well, there's a particular quote that that led me to ask this question uh, about Yoko Ono Poem Game. Uh, This recording of Acapella Word Association from Yoko has yet to be bootlegged. One can only hope that there was no need for a second take. I have not yet found the second take. And thus, the world can live another day. And now I will ask about Leninology, which is your other baby, so to speak. Um, I, I have less specific questions because I'm, I'm more interested in the the general... Because it, it's a really big undertaking. It's like the John equivalent, or you're writing the John equivalent of the Mark Lewison uh, Chronicle book. Um, how, how have you managed to get a nearly day-to-day guide of what happened? Like, and well, I'll ask with, the same, like, what were your big sources for this? Well, with Leninology, um, completely started from scratch. It, the, the book uh, came about by, I was, I was gathering update information for Eight Arms to Hold You, and I never got past John. <laughs> so I, we, we made, I'd made a list of all of these people I wanted to talk to and all the questions I wanted to answer and all of the myths that were out there that I wanted to address. And like Eight Arms, Leninology was a book that was written because I wanted it and it didn't exist yet. Much like, on, on a lesser scale, this show, the sole reason it existed is because I wanted to hear people tell their Beatles stories, but no one else was making this show. So it's like, well, I've never made a podcast before. Well, here we go. And now I, I have at least seven listeners now. I, I don't mean to brag. I'm kind of a big deal. Well, my wife turned it on, too, so now you probably have eight. Welcome to the fan club. So, uh, but with Leninology, decided to start completely from scratch because no one needs another cut-and-paste book. Well, when did did you start this, uh, Leninology? Leninology was started in 2000, uh, pretty much immediately after the, the publication of Eight Arms, and... I ended up being 13 years late on a two-year project. It finally was issued and published, self-published in 2015. Well, sometimes, or as the expression is, good things come to him what waits. And you get out of it what you put into it. So um, 
started from scratch, interviewed everybody that I could find that would talk to us. Uh, I brought on Scott Riley a few years into the project just because it, it was so large, and he was able to help quite a bit with the with the research and with being a great sounding board. And um, we basically, if if we couldn't validate something without a contemporary news report or contemporary document, photograph, tape, something like that, is it it didn't go in as a fact it got in as a as a you know if it merited noting it it went in but with a caveat now the book was written without foresight so uh, would it be fair to say it's like your methodology is like it's fiction until proven fact that's right yeah that's right so um yeah and it just it just came together as this huge puzzle and we'd eventually find more and more pieces and the the picture would come sharper into focus until we decided to say i just got to stop this this has to get out and then it was six months of of you know round the clock work putting it together uh getting ready to promote it marketing it making it ready for print and uh I was very relieved uh, the day that uh, I turned it into the printer. Well, and the the Beatles book world is much better because of it. Thank you. Yeah. Um, so, out of all the sources, uh, were you starstruck, for lack of a better term, by any of the people that you talked to trying to like find out info about John? Like, you're like, I can't believe I'm talking to this person. Not necessarily, because I think I probably got over that while we were interviewing people for Eight Arms. And, you know, sitting in a hotel room with just you and your co-author and Alan Parsons for two hours talking talking Beatles and Floyd and, and the like was, you know, that you can get a little starstruck at that. Or with Lawrence Juber sitting there and playing him all of your wings bootlegs and saying, well, what, what do you remember about this? Well, that wasn't me. That's Henry or or the like. Or, oh, yeah, I remember when we did this. And, you know, those are some some pretty cool things. Or, or many, many Saturday mornings uh, FaceTiming with, with May and talking about her time with John. Well, actually, uh, when this episode goes up, our previous episode, which was our Christmas episode, will feature your aforementioned Lawrence Juber as our special guest. Terrific. Yeah. Wonderful guy. Yeah. I mean, I haven't recorded it yet, but c'est la vie. It, it, it's going to be a great show. It's already a great show, you know? Again, don't take my word. I'm a liar. Um, um, so... I, I want to ask that John Lennon has become this mythic figure. I, I feel like it's fair to say a, a lot of details about his life have gotten kind of distorted through the years. Um, were there any like really big popular myths about John that you kind of set to disprove in this book? Well, our our goal is to provide as much of the truth as we could find and present it in its most unbiased form. So, by virtue of that, many many myths 
could be disproven just by presentation of the, the absolute facts. Uh, it, it's been many years since since we spent 20 years since started the book, um, and and five since I, I really last read it. So nothing really comes to mind when if you're if you're looking for an, a MythBuster. You, you'll just have to go read the book then, audience. Won't That's right. You? That's right. Um, and I want to talk because you, you can you can't really talk about John in the years that you're covering uh, his life without talking about Yoko. Um, uh, the same question kind of applies, or it's the same question, uh, but. For Yoko, do you think there's any uh, myths surrounding Yoko that you have set to disprove? Well, yeah, things like she broke up the Beatles. I mean, we were shocked at how much of the story Yoko really was on in their time together. You know, we weren't looking for anything sensational or, or things like that. But I mean, he did his albums and she had quite a bit of input into those likewise he participated in her artwork projects and as maligned as she was by the music business he was maligned by the art world mm -hmm. believe it or not so but there was a huge output of work non-musical work uh films and happenings and things like that that they did together that really hadn't been documented yet i i, I can't remember my memory is jumbled um this this shows you kind of how over the top John and Yoko were. I can't remember if this happened or if it was a scene from the Ruddles. Um, John did the the film about his erect penis. Was that the Ruddles or was that real? No, that was real. Ah, no, I have not seen it. <laughs> well, Plastic Ono band box coming out soon. We can only right. hope. <laughs> Right, that's, that's one of the big gaps in every Lennon collector's yeah. arsenal. It, it's Carnival of Light uh, and the John Lennon erect penis film. Thankfully, we haven't seen a lot of, of, of fake copies of of that show up on YouTube. <laughs> Jesus Christ. Well, well you know, you're not... How many Carnival of Light are there out yeah. there? It's, oh my god! Prove me wrong, Ethan. Well, now, now you're just you're begging for it. You're, some John Lennon impersonator is gonna walk away with this with a great idea. Only a few people around could verify that nowadays. Yeah. Oh, Yoko's eighty-seven would probably give her a heart attack. Um, and now kind of as a transition to uh, the rest of my kind of normal fans on the run questions. Um, the other day I was at a local record store and I, I picked something up, which I used to have when I started collecting. I loved it so much. And by love, I mean, beat the shit out of by listening to it. Um, which in a weird way is kind of fitting uh, for what it was. Or I'll, it'll explain why in a second. The album I picked up was the Capital Albums, Volume 1. Um, so, in a weird way, I kind of experienced the early Beatles music in the same way a lot of the uh, 
first generation, well, most of the first generation fans did in the States with those Dave Dexter Jr., duophonic, you know, weird mixes, the albums, um, all produced in uh, little tiny mini LP sleeves. And, uh, well, I think you know where I'm going with this. I was reading the uh, the booklet, as you do, when you get, like, a CD, and uh, I was checking the uh, special credits, um, and I saw a name listed. And I'm like, huh, I know that guy. Would you tell us who that name was? That, that would have been my first Beatles album credit, and to throw that back uh, 30 years 30 years I think is the reason I really started to get into all of this and taking the notes and collating all the information all of that were Wally Pedrazic's sleeve notes on the Rarities album Yeah, wait, did so Wal- you've got him to thank for wait did Wally for write the sleeve notes for Rarities mm-hmm. god damn it I didn't know that Shit, I should have... For the the American version, yes. I should have asked him about that. Well, there's always room for a part two. Right. Wow. No, Wally's, you know, the All Together Now book, and and, and those notes, and uh, along with Nick Schaffner's Beatles Forever book, I mean, those are the the start of of any Beatle fan's career, I think. Mm -hmm. Or journey. Uh, along with the uh, the Hunter Davies book, right? Yeah, right. But you know, all together now is you know it's one of the most important books ever written, and I feel like you uh, took the solo aspect of it and like amplified it by like a hundred with like filling in all the info you could possibly want for Eight Arms, and it's that was the intent. Yeah. It's it's one of the best reference or pieces of reference material I've ever read. We appreciate it. Um, and so now I want to ask you: This is where it gets fun. Um, what is your or I'll I'll ask about I'll ask Beatles and I'll ask Lennon. What is your favorite Beatles song? Strawberry Fields. No, A Day in the Life. Yeah. A Day in the Life. Any, any particular reason? It, it's just got everything yeah. to it. it, it it's, it's got John, it's got Paul, it's got fantastic instrumentation, it's got wonderful production values, and it is just the quintessential Beatles song. Now, if you wanted one of the, the pre-studio years, I'd have to go back and say, This Boy is probably my favorite Beatles song, just because it, it's you know, you don't have a better example of, of their singing until you get to Because. Well, you mentioned, uh, or you chose a day in the life, and since I can gather from the book, you're you're a bit of an audiophile. Um, what is your favorite way to listen to a day in the life? Like, your favorite mix of the song? Oh, I, I'll take it pretty much any way I can get it, I think. You know, it, it depends where I am when it, when it the, the mood hits. If I'm if I'm in front of the big system, or if I'm just on the 
with the headphones in front of the computer. You know, any any way to listen to it's a good way. Are, are you a fan of the uh, the Giles Martin remix from a couple years ago? Um, I haven't studied it enough to to fairly answer that. Yeah. Well, I mean, when it comes down to it. It's still the Beatles' a day of the life. You can only mm-hmm. do so much to it mm-hmm. because no matter which way you pan it, you separate all the tracks, it's still the Beatles' a day in the life. Right. And on the flip side of that question, pun intended, uh, what is your least favorite Beatles song? Boy. I don't know that there really is one. Well, what, maybe one that you like have listened to so much that you've gotten sick of and you never want to really hear it again. Uh, I don't want to start the hate mail, oh, so I'm, I'm going <laughs> to... I take the hate mail. I'm the one in the comments arguing with people. You have full diplomatic immunity. I'm not a big fan of the Revolver album. Oh? Oh, I mean, you've got three great John tracks there, but uh, just it just doesn't gel with me. You know, either either Revolver or Beatles for Sale. Every everything else is. Wow, a hush oh, falls cool. over the room. The Revolver is my favorite Beatles album. A lot of people's favorite yeah. Beatles album. But again, that's the wonderful thing about the Beatles. It and it actually will kind of lead into one of my next questions um it can mean anything to different people everyone interprets the music in their own way and as much as i'd like to joke and say to people like oh you don't like revolver well how how is how is life being wrong but you know to each their own but so if revolver is not your favorite what is your favorite beatles album Probably the Beatles, just because of the diversity of all the songs, and because there is so much there. That's that's probably the worst thing about it is that it needs to be listened to as a whole, and you've got to dedicate, you know, ninety four minutes if you want to hear the whole thing. And um, I, I could ask these. I, I may do it in kind of a rapid fire, you know, word association type thing. But I, I'll ask the same for John, uh, since Lennonology. What is your favorite John Lennon song? Instant Karma. And I, I'll also ask because uh, the new uh, the new big uh, remix box, uh, "Give Me Some Truth," has come mm-hmm. out. Have you gotten a chance to listen to uh, the remix of Instant Karma? Yes. Yeah, I've listened to the, the remixes a couple of times. Uh, what do you think of, or um, about the Instant Karma one in particular? Or or you can just... I, I have mixed opinions honest, on the box. I, I actually prefer the, the, the surround mixes on the Lennon Legend DVD. Really? Uh, the 5-1 mixes on that just because there's so much more discreet information. I understand what they were they were trying to achieve with, with the new Ultimate mixes, and that was to bring John's voice to the fore and push everything else back and to leave John's voice somewhat untreated. But uh, just kind of being the, the 
researcher that I am, I when something's discreet and you can hear just that guitar part on its on its own, it, it speaks volumes. Mm-hmm. There's just so many things that more that can be learned from those mixes than can be learned from the new ultimate mixes. Well, I think that's one of the best things that's happened to Beatles analysis in the past uh dozen years is the the rock band game having all the stems for mm-hmm. a lot of the Beatles songs including like entire albums like Rubber Soul and Sgt. Pepper and being able to go as just you know a normal schmuck fan and act like you're in Abbey Road Studios with Jeff Emmerich and just turn down the fader and just you know hear just the bass or Ringo's drumming mm-hmm it's 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 i remember when i was very young sitting in front of my parents record player thinking wow it, it, in this we're talking early early 70s here it'd be really cool to hear all these instruments on their own yeah well so and it, it only took 40 years for it to happen yeah. so i wonder if they kind of knew that would happen when they put out the game knowing that like someone would data mine it and find those files um, and the lines are still blurred quite a bit on those because, as you know, a lot of those were four-track recordings, and you can't really extract unique instruments like you could if it was a 32-track recording. So That's why the drums sound a little like, unless you have the drums, the bass, and like the rhythm guitar, the drums sound just like, and they just sound like mush. There are a lot of artifacts left oh. there, but you know, who knows? Someday, maybe the law leak. Maybe the law be issued commercially is is a download uh, option, uh, which I I think is probably one of the next places these artists are going to have to go is to release session tapes. Well, as, as, as streaming, yeah. uh, for example, King Crimson in the court of Kim, Crimson King. Um, the album set, the, the CD box set that's coming out in a couple of weeks Wait, here. There, there's a it, box coming out? Mm-hmm. I did not know and about this. It is every minute of the sessions for the album. Holy shit. I, okay, you just made me a very excited man. Because, well, King Crimson was one of the few holders out on streaming until, like, earlier this year. And I was so excited when I was finally able to, you know listen on my phone to you know epitaph or 21st century schizoid man well now you can get all 10 takes of each song and and so look very much looking forward to that well you know what they say robert fripp giveth and robert fripp taketh away um so favorite song instant karma what is your least favorite song I haven't been asked that before, believe favorite, it or not. Your least favorite um, John Lennon song? Yeah, yeah. It, you know, it's it might be something off of uh, Sometime in New York City. Uh, yes, the the maligned one. It, mm-hmm. The only one where the cover can't even really be presented in its entirety these days. I don't know how they're going to issue that as a box set. Uh, I, I, I have no idea. That because the and the, the the album kicks off 
with the song with the controversial title, Woman is the Something of the Something, we'll say. It's I, I don't know how they're going to reconcile that. I I don't know. Yeah. And I'm glad it's... it's it'll be nice if it gets the same treatment as the other albums, but I don't know how, how that can be marketed. Well... That whole Sometime in New York City album, it's there, there's some good tracks on it, in my opinion, but it, it's just a, it's a clusterfuck. You know, one song that I, I have trouble listening to in its commercial-released form is One Day at a Time with the falsetto vocals. Okay. I think they, that that was really a, uh, an ill-advised uh direction on that song i think uh you know that you can hear the outtakes where it's where it's not delivered as falsetto and it's it's just such a better song in that format um and uh what is your favorite john lennon album uh double fantasy's got a, a, a warm place because that's the first album that i uh, bought as a fan that I, that I wasn't catching up on purchasing the catalog. That was the first one that I bought new. Um, I, I like Walls and Bridges a lot. I'm a huge Elton fan, uh, which contributes to that. Um, and, and it's hard to find anything anything wrong on Plastic Ono. Well, speaking of Elton in the John Lennon, and we were talking about the Ultimate Mixes, that's one of the biggest travesties, I think, that the new box did. They completely butchered whatever gets you through the night. Because to me, the track is like, it is, you need that Phil Spector, Wall of Sound, 1974 production. It's what gives the song its charm, and it feels naked when I'm listening to it now. You need to hear Elton, for one thing. Yeah. So, so I, I would listen to the Lennon Legend mixes hands down any day and, over those. Um, and I'll kind of do these quick fire because, uh, you know, they're the other ones that aren't John. What is your favorite Paul album? Ram or Back to the Egg. What is your favorite George album? Mm. I like Somewhere in England a lot, which is an odd choice. I like the George Harrison album a lot. I was going to say, I I, like I've the, never gotten uh, the Somewhere in England. That that trio of, of late seventies, early those late seventies, early eighties albums and his production and his songwriting, he, he was so happy at that time, for example, on the George Harrison album that the you know, it just came across fantastic on record. Uh how do you feel about Gontrapo? Um it's to a lesser degree and I mean you know, everything's been said about all things must pass. Yeah. You know, it's a wonderful album, and I, I prefer a lot of the stripped-down uh, acoustic or electric guitar demos to some of the things on record. But people say it has to be remixed, but it is what it is because of Spectre. <laughs> well, I think, I think we have a chance at getting it remixed because uh, for the Black Friday Record Store Day, they're putting out... Uh, 
of 45 of My Sweet Lord with some new mm-hmm. remix, which if... Is it a new remix? I think, I think I so. Well, I think it's a new remix. I, I would just assume so. Um, mm-hmm. But if they manage... Because that usually means it's a teaser for like some big sure. box, and I've heard some stuff that some of the people working on the John stuff were are working on some George stuff. So I, I can only assume there's going to be an All Things Must Pass box, which this means this year is going to be a nightmare for people who are buying. I don't know that we're going to see a lot more this year. Well, per se, just because of the anniversary, I, I think you know the the Plastic Ono Band we're not going to see this year. It, it's just too late <laughs> to to announce it and, and market it. Same for same for all things must pass. Well, it, Unless they it, just decide to drop them out of nowhere, and I don't think that's the way the marketing goes these days. Well, I, I think the original plan was to put Plastic Ono Band out because you can see it listed in the Give Me Some Truth stuff, <laughs> and there was the book that came out. And yeah, you guys have that already. We don't see that down here in the States for another couple of weeks. Is it out in Canada? I know it's out in Europe already. Okay. I haven't checked the you know, I haven't checked the Canadian dates, but all I know, you know, it's not out here till the thirteenth. Well, I'll I have something else to add to my Christmas list now. Sure. Yeah. But it's if they my worst case scenario is that they manage to put out um plastic ono band all things must pass and like they've already announced McCartney 3 so it's like okay so i i have to buy all all of them as a collector that's the the weight we bear yeah, it's you didn't ask for my favorite ringo album oh i well <laughs> i almost forgot what is your favorite ringo album sentimental journey the first one the first one uh, and, and you know Ringo's a great album and and Goodnight Vienna is a, a, a very good album but you know those are the top you know those are the, the public's favorite yeah um, and lastly I want to ask what do the Beatles mean or what have the Beatles and you know the solo Beatles mean in your life like what have they meant to you? Well, the, the music is all you know. Music's a, a huge part of my life. There, there's always something on, it, it seems, and uh, they basically gave me a great foundation for to discover all of these other musicians. I mean, for example, Wally and Harry's book, you know, turns you on to all these other people, <laughs> and it, it's it's just uh, an ever evolving. Because wasn't that like how you would find out about like people like Billy J. Kramer and uh, Jerry and sure, the Pacemakers? Leon Russell. Yeah, uh, Jackie Lomax. Mm-hmm. Um, so I tend to fall back to to more of the music that was popular when I was sixteen, seventeen, which would have been the late seventies. <laughs> Um, I'll, I'll tend to listen to more nowadays, but uh, the Beatles are always a, a great part of, uh, of the music library. And I'm always ripping over one of them around here. And my final question, and it's it's over to you. Where can people find these books, and is there anything more you'd like to say about them? 
Um, I think both of the books are available at leninology.com. Eight Arms to Hold You is now only available as an ebook uh, because the original sold out and was going for three figures. I and noticed that. <laughs> so the e version uh, has about 25,000 new words in place of old bad words. Actually, I'll, I'll just jump in here. Um, uh, message to all eBay scalpers uh, go fuck yourselves. And end of message. And Leninology is available in paperback. I still have a few hardbacks. They they're they're more of a B stock variety now than than mint copies. But uh, unfortunately, if you live outside of the United States, the the postal rates are exorbitant and uh, cost more than the book itself. But if you're looking for something on the solo Beatles to to broaden your horizons as to what exists and what's out there, by all means, go with Eight Arms. If you're looking for more of a, a, a reference historical look at John and Yoko's career, both artistically and personally, uh, Leninology is the way to go. Um, yeah, I, I just really want to thank you for being here today. I, I've had a blast talking with you. Great, my pleasure. And anyone I can talk bootlegs and all these mixes, the stuff that like I try and talk to my friends about, and that's the reason why my friends don't talk to me anymore. It's like, it's, Ethan, it's I don't cloud. care what stampers were used in the 1972 pressing of the concert for Bangladesh. Shut up. But, yeah... <laughs> I understand. Yeah, it's it's the burden of life, but it, it's it's the hill I'm willing to make my stand on. I, I think I butchered that expression, but that's a, a trademark of the show. The host has no idea what he's talking about, and he is, you know. Yeah. Well. You know. You know. Anyways. Thank you so much for coming on the show. To ev- or oh, I forgot to do my big spiel. Uh, the aforementioned spiel. If you're listening to this on YouTube, please hit that like button. Please hit that red subscribe button, and please hit that bell notification so you get notified every time uh, a merry old episode of Fans on the Run goes up, which is every Friday. And well, yeah, every Friday, unless no every Friday. There's no exception to the rule. Um, and you can find it on. Spotify, iTunes, Google Podcast, uh, Stitcher, Podbay, anywhere good podcasts can be heard and most bad ones. Uh, please give me a five star, or actually, I'm not going to ask for a five star. If you like the show, please give us a rating. I really appreciate the uh, the feedback. It always makes my day when I see a nice little review. It makes me feel good about myself and not like I'm screaming into the void with this show. <laughs> but anyways... That was my spiel. Thank you so much to everyone else out to everyone else out there. You can go home now. Fans on the Run is produced by Ethan Alexander. Additional voiceovers by Richard Phillip. This has been a Showtown production.